That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he broke the bread and blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness towards us, your patience. And God, we thank you that this word that is, that is open before us is your word. It has your voice and your authority behind it. God, I pray that you would help me to speak alongside that word. And God, I pray that any other word would fall away. Help our ears to hear this thing that the scriptures are speaking. Help our hearts to receive it. Help our eyes likewise to be opened as these disciples were. I thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. This story is, uh, is, maybe, is maybe one of the most famous and strange stories of, of what happens to and with Jesus after he's resurrected. Um, He's, he meets these two people on the road out of town, and they, he hears them talking. He, he's drawing out the summary of what their conversation is about, and they're clearly up, upset. Um, Cleopas and this other disciple are probably two people that Luke himself talked to. It's why we have Cleopas' name here, it's, it's possible that this is Cleopas and his wife, if this is the same disciple by a very similar name in another gospel. And they're, they're saying to him their disappointment. 
their sadness and, and their confusion. Because on one hand, they, they had all these expectations of who Jesus was and he was crucified and they know that for sure and he was dying and they're also like, but then like this wild stuff has happened and, and some people are saying, some people we know, some people we think we trust that, that, that he's not dead anymore and, and this just kind of doesn't make sense because you, you have to understand nobody was expecting the resurrection. The disciples, these disciples, all of the disciples, they were not expecting the resurrection. This was not on their menu of expectations. So when they saw Jesus dead, they thought, that's the end. Because when people die, that is the end. And that was what they thought was happening here. And Jesus says to them, did you, did you miss it? Why did you miss it? Didn't you know? that this is what had to happen. He says here uh, in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Didn't you see it in the scriptures? Then Jesus teaches his way through the Old Testament. And as somebody who has to teach through the Old Testament, it is particularly annoying to me that Luke did not put the contents of what Jesus says here. I assume it's the greatest Old Testament lecture of all time. But Jesus says to these two disciples and, and then and to us who are listening into their conversation, didn't you know, couldn't you see what the scriptures would tell you in the story of Israel that was pointing in this direction the whole time? And, and to be fair, to be fair to Cleopas and this other disciple and everyone who is confused and surprised by what was going on, it's, it can be hard to see where this is coming from. It could be easy to miss, but the signs of what Jesus is pointing to is all there in the story of Israel. The story of Israel, the story of the people of God, the story of the people who are meant to be receiving Jesus as this anointed one, this deliverer, is a sign to all of us that something is going on that would require a kind of cataclysmic, monstrous event like this. It has to be something that would upend the whole timeline of Israel itself. And, and, and what we see, what's surprising, what was delivered to them is delivered to us, is somehow a cross in an empty tomb is literally the crux it is the hinge of Israel's story, and it is surprisingly the hinge point of all of human history. Israel, its own story, is pointing forward beyond itself. And if you pick up the Bible and you read these scriptures that Jesus teaches, something is stoked in you. There is meant to be an appetite created inside of you for something that the story of Israel doesn't deliver all by itself because the story of Israel is entirely a mixed bag. All of the most heroic portions of Israel's story are ultimately defeat. 
When Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land and God explicitly tells them in in terms that are terrifying to read that you should defeat everyone and take every inch of land and you don't even get through half of the book of Joshua before you see that all these victories and victories and victories are always with a but. But they didn't do it. But they, they couldn't defeat. They wouldn't defeat. They couldn't finish. And every book that follows at least has a but in every single victory. That's the best ones. And the worst stories, which are everywhere, are not even partial victory. They're just entirely defeat. The very best kings of Israel, the most powerful ones, their kingdom is tiny. It doesn't even cover all of the promised land. The the one that, that looks the most like a king, the one that looks the most glamorous, Saul, who who he just seems like a king. He's you know tall, which is the primary qualification for being king, apparently. He's tall. He's good looking. He's authoritative, and he can't handle the job. The best king that Israel has, the most important one, David, he is victorious time and again. As a a child, he wins battles, and yet by the end of his life, he can't even conquer his own appetites. He is himself conquered. He's a murderer and a liar and adulterer. He's the best one. Solomon, his son, has more riches and powers, but his own greed leads him to collect women and gods. And in his own appetites is the seeds of Israel's destruction. King after king after king will be mostly a failure. Even good king Josiah the one who finally hears the law of Israel, the the law of God, and desires to lead Israel to obey this God, he can't even stand before Egypt. The Egypt that Israel has escaped, he stands in front of Egypt and refuses to let them pass, and Josiah is not the conquering hero, he's the conquered one who dies. There are no heroes in Israel's history. You should read the scriptures of the Old Testament and be left saying, is this it? Is the whole story just this? And the prophets, the prophets come and they they speak with power. They speak with poetry and beauty and precision. They they speak with with faithfulness and clarity of insight and they, they do what God tells them to do and no one listens. No one cares. Elijah wins a battle against the prophets of Baal. He wipes out the prophets of Baal. And Israel is faithful for like 15 minutes before they move on and they forget again. The prophets speak for centuries and centuries and centuries, reminding the people of Israel of the nature of the true God and the people of God, the people of God. They turn away time and again. Jeremiah rams his head against an iron wall, weeping because the people will not listen. 
as he watches Israel careen towards destruction and disaster. The prophet Zechariah, he tells the people that there will be one who will atone for Israel in a single day, who will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people of Jesus' day, with the words of the prophet, do not hear what he is saying. Because Israel is a mixed bag at best. And Jesus says, the scriptures here are pointing forward to this thing that must happen. The suffering of the Christ and the ascending into his glory. Because tied into the story of Israel is this truth. That the undoing of all of Israel's enemies will be through the surprising door through which its enemy has stopped. Israel thinks that the way to conquer all of its enemies is the way that they would do it, which is the might of their own power. And they expect God to come and deliver on his promises the way that they want him to and the way that they have tried for century and century and century and yet failed to do. Finally, the Savior one, he must be the one who does it well, who does the job. And Jesus comes presenting himself and saying, I will do the job. And I will do the job that you do not expect And the job that is better than the one that you hope for. Because the enemies that Jesus comes to deal with are not the Babylonians, are not the Egyptians, are not the Romans. It is in fact the greater enemy that Israel has been aware of and embracing and yet missed the whole time. It's the enemy that stalks from the very beginning of the passages of scriptures. Is the enemies of sin and death. It is not the Philistines or the Canaanites or the Amorites or the Hivites or the Babylonians or the Persians or any of these other people that are Israel's problem. The problem that stalks them is the problem that took down David from the inside. It is the voracious, destructive, suffering giving voice. Of sin. It is the power of the grave that will ruin Israel. And the plan of God written into Israel's story was always that in the context of the ruin of sin, God would undo it and so destroy the grave. It was year, year after year that Israel was required to take an innocent animal and kill it and smear its blood everywhere and somehow receive mercy. The equation was never really clear because God very clearly tells them, I am not hungry, I do not need this animal. This animal has done nothing for me and done nothing to me. But when you kill it, I will defer judgment from you to it. 
And that sort of calculus is never really clear in the scriptures. But what is clear is that bloodshed is on the scene when sin is on the scene. Whenever sin is in the room, it is not just an alternative life choice. It is not a different set of opinions. Sin is a murderous, powerful force in the world that will result in death. Sin has no appetite to be a friend, to be an ally, to be anything other than a murderer. When sin is in the world, in God's world, death is on the scene. And God has always put within the story of Israel this proper accounting of the way that things are. Death is in the world because sin is in the world. Israel falls over and over and over again, not because of the quality of their weapons or their superior or inferior military might. It is because sin is in the world. And that is true not just for Israel, but for everyone. And Jesus presents himself as the resolution to the entire story of Israel. It is in Genesis 3 that the first animal dies because of sin. Adam and Eve have rejected the reign and rule of the creator God. They are naked, they are ashamed, and they will die. And in the moment when God might deliver his own sentence of death to kill, it seems, what sin is, he defers. He kills an animal so that they might be clothed. It is under the cover of another's life that they are given mercy. It was always in the story from the very beginning that the way to destroy death was through death. It is not because God is bloodthirsty. It is not because God needs blood to be satisfied. It is because these are the terms by which sin plays. These are the terms of the deal that Adam and Eve willingly entered. They are the terms of the deal that Cleopas and his friend enter. They are the terms of the deal that you and I enter. When you deal in sin, you deal in death. And God is deadly serious about the redemption and the salvation of his people. So it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And in his suffering was all of God's glory. In his suffering, not in spite of, not on the other side of his suffering, but in his suffering was the glory of God. Because when Jesus dies, he embraces all of the very worst that sin can do. 
There is no higher gradation of sin's power. There is no higher you can go up the escalation meter. All that sin can do will ultimately lead to death. So the Son of God says, bring me the worst of your arsenal. Bring to me all that you desire to do. Bring it upon me. Bring me everything that everyone deserves because enter the deal. I will enter in on the side of my people into the deal itself. Let us deal in death and let us deal with death. And when the Son of God is crucified and on the third day, He makes a mockery of sin's power. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2. He makes a mockery of sin's power. He sees the worst that sin can do and he spits on it. He steps on it. He walks out of it as if it is nothing. Though it is everything that terrifies and enslaves you and me, though it is everything that has undone Israel, he walks on it. Shaming the power of the grave. And in his suffering, he is glorified as the resurrected Lord. This is what the story has always been about. It has always been about the salvation of Israel, the salvation of the whole world, the ruin of the ruination of sin. And he tells these two disciples this. He goes in to a meal with them because this is what Jesus is like. All power, all creator, all sustaining one coming in for a meal with his people. And it is here that their eyes are opened because they see his scarred hands, breaking the bread, and they remember no one's hands break that bread like Jesus. It is the key that unlocks their blindness, and they see it all. They see it all finally for who and what he really is. And the question that's presented to you as the hearers and the listeners of Luke's gospel is, do you see him? Do you see? Do you see what the risen Lord Jesus means for you? The scars that you bear on your body are matched by his own. The wounds that death has dealt you be it sorrow or disappointment or loneliness or grief. These are the wounds that he has laid upon his own body to deliver you, to rescue you. If you have been deprived of hope, you are not alone. You are not strange. You are not a stranger. You are one of billions People at sea in a world beset and enslaved by sin. And Jesus has seen the worst 
that sin and death would do to you and for you, for love for you, he has entered into the worst that could be done to you so that in him you might have what seems impossible to have. All of the life that you long for. If you read your own history and not just Israel's, and you see all of the deficit, all that's missing, all that grieves you, all the failure, all the loss, it's all pointing towards Jesus. He is the one in whom you will find your healing. He is the one who will banish your shame. He is the one who will bring you from the grave so that even in the face of your worst enemy, you will hear him say, I will never leave you. I will never leave you or forsake you. In him is all of the life that you long for. And today, do you see him? Maybe you've known him for a long time. Maybe you've lost sight of him. Today, the bread will be broken again. And your eyes are meant to see. And hope is meant to be rekindled. Because the very life of Christ is your feast. Today, you may be here and you have never seen him. Guess what? Your lack of ability to see, your confusion at who he is, it's the mark of normal disciples. It's right here in the scripture. And today, your blindness can be over. When the bread is broken, Jesus before you, it is an invitation. Will then you come and feast on him? Will you come and sit at his table? Will you come and feast on his mercy? And will you be delivered into his life forever? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you are risen from the grave. We thank you that you, are, you have moved into the depths of our enemy's grasp and you have destroyed what he has to offer. We are so relieved and profoundly grateful. Father, I pray for the people here today who have given up hope. Maybe they once knew hope and maybe they never did. And Father, I pray that today the response, whether they've known you or not, would be the same, which is to run towards you. Jesus, I pray that people, all of us might see, your people might hear. That the worst enemies that might be arrayed against you have been destroyed. That we, our bones are the ones that the prophet Ezekiel prophesied might be bound together in life again. It is, it is us that you, the suffering servant, has served and saved. And Father, I pray that today our response would be eager, ready faith. That we would trust you. 
and run to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you this Easter morning for what you've done, not just a long time ago, but you, what you are continuing to do and what you will yet do until the story of your conquering is completed and all might see your power and your love. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for your love for us. Amen.